0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, I want to ask you a question. Let's say you are a carpenter with unlimited skill, knowledge, and resources. And you have been given a blank check to build your dream house. What would it look like? I know some of you, some of you are big beach people for some reason. When I think of the beach, I just think it's it's hot and it's sticky, and you got the salt and you got the sand. The only reason you go to the beach is to eat seafood. Ultimately, you know. Happy to do that once a year. But anyway, some of you are beach people. You would, you would build your dream house overlooking the beach. Maybe not Myrtle Beach, maybe Hilton Head, you know, Johns Island, something like that. Some of you are mountain people. You would build your dream house in the mountains. It would be huge, and it would smell like cedar and oak, and you'd have big, roaring fireplaces. Your dream house would be overlooking some mountain landscape. In October, you can enjoy all of the warm fall colors. Some of you are big book people and the first thing that came to mind for you was a big library with one of those ladders that's on wheels that you can roll back and forth like Belle from Beauty and the Beast you can sing your little french songs and enjoy your library. Some of you are home theater types and the dream house that you would build for yourself comes equipped with a basement that has some kind of large TV screen and big sound system and you can watch all your fast and furious movie marathons you know to your heart's content that's the sort of house that you would build for yourself. Some of you are RV, camper, tiny home people, which just does not even compute for me because the point of a house is to be comfortable and you can't be comfortable in 600 square feet. Nor do I want my home to be susceptible to a tornado. It could be just tossed and kind of thrown, but that's that's just me. I wonder what kind of house you would build. I wonder what kind of house Jesus would build. A carpenter with unlimited skill, knowledge, and resources. What is Christ building? Now, we've been studying 1 Peter, and this is a letter from the Apostle Peter that's written to Christians that are strewn across these affluent pagan cities in the Roman world. The recipients of this letter are in uh, northern modern-day Turkey. And Peter calls them Exiles. They're exiles in the sense that they are citizens of heaven, that they are not of this world. And they've been called into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. And as a result of their commitment to Jesus, their fidelity to Jesus, they feel their distinctiveness. They're in cities, amidst cities and communities and families that don't share their values. They feel like exiles. Some of them have been targeted by soft persecution. Some are looked at sideways for following after Jesus. Some are ostracized from their families and social circles, social circles. All related either directly or indirectly to their faith in Jesus. And so there's great pressure for them to compromise, to bend on their convictions, to fall away, to abandon truth, to wonder even if they're doing something wrong to doubt God's purposes in all of this. And they're suffering. Each week, we've said that we can actually draw a parallel between our situation and theirs. We're aware of the reality of our exile in what's been called the post-Christian West. We feel our distinctiveness. We look around, and we feel as if the world does not any longer share our values. Ours is a world where Christian teaching was once widely accepted, but it's now viewed as the fringe Things like biblical literacy and church involvement have declined significantly. And so, you know, maybe we're not experiencing the same degree of opposition that these brothers and sisters were that were receiving this letter, but we can at least relate to the feeling of being looked at sideways because of our commitment to Jesus. We can relate to feeling pressure to compromise, to feeling pressure to bend on our convictions. We can relate to this kind of wondering if we're doing something wrong and even wondering about God's purposes in all of this. Peter gives us a word today in this passage. I think you can actually divide First Peter into thirds. It's not exactly thirds, but it's, it's kind of thirds. The chapters and verses in our Bibles aren't original to the text as it was originally written. It's uh, folks' attempt to kind of best organize the book as they say, see fit. But I think you can actually organize the book of 1 Peter into these thirds, uh, beginning in, in chapter 1, verse 3, and ending here in chapter 2, verse 10, as, it's, as a first kind of unit within the book. Then chapter 2, verse 11, we're given this word, beloved. It's an address that kind of breaks the rhythm or breaks the flow of the book, followed by a list of exhortations. And then we're given in chapter 4, verse 18, another beloved, another address that breaks the flow and follow, you know, followed by these exhortations. And so the, the text that we're in today is actually kind of the conclusion to the first third of the book of 1 Peter. We've arrived at this point that's almost a kind of, climactic like summing up of some of the themes that we've seen present so far in this first third of the book. And Peter says, let me tell you about what Jesus is up to. Let let me tell you about the house that Jesus builds. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So in the previous section, I've already mentioned, Peter talks about kind of nursing on the word, tasting the goodness of God, devoting ourselves to God more and more. And he says, as we do that, as we come to Jesus, the one that we come to is a living stone, a living stone rejected in the sight of men, but chosen and precious, verses 4 and verses 6. This a great paradoxical image a living stone is giving to us. A stone suggests something that's sturdy, it's immovable, it's hard. But it's a living stone. It's not inert, you know? I, I, I wasn't alive in the 70s, but what I understand is that in the 70s, there was the pet rock phenomenon. That was a thing. People would have these pet rocks, right? It's like, what's ironic about that is rocks aren't living. They're not pets, right? So there's kind of this paradoxical image that's at play here. You have a rock, a stone. It's, it's immovable. It's hard, yet it's a living stone. It is resurrected. It is real. It is active. Peter says, this stone is rejected by men, but chosen and precious in God's eyes. Then in verse 6, he quotes Isaiah 28 and Psalm 118. A pair of texts that describe a stone that's been rejected, but ultimately becomes the foundation of a new building, a new temple. In the Bible times, in the ancient world, when you were building a structure, you would identify a kind of perfectly hewn stone to be the cornerstone which you established as kind of the first stone in building up the building. And it was kind of a plumb line for the rest of the building, right? So you, you want the first stone, the cornerstone, to be a good stone. It's got to be sturdy. It's got to be square. It's got to look right. You want this to be the perfect stone. And so that's the imagery in Isaiah and Psalm 118. The stone that's deemed unfit, ironically, is then made the cornerstone of this new foundation. Imagine going to Home Depot and you're your, your, your building... Uh, you know, you're finally finishing that basement that you've always wanted, or you're, you're building your dream home in the mountains, whatever. You go to Home Depot, you're looking at the two-by-fours, and what do you always do when you're assessing the two-by-fours? You look down at it to make sure that thing isn't warped to high heaven, right? You look down the two-by-four, and if it's bending, you know, kind of all directions this way, it's bending all directions this way, you say, that's not a two-by-four, that's fit for the purposes that I need it, Right? Well, imagine if you took a two-by-four, one that you cast aside that's warped to high heaven in your eyes. It's not fit for use in your eyes. But then some other builder comes and selects that very two-by-four, not just to be included in the construction, but to be the basis for the rest of the house. That's what's being described here. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, Rejected in the sight of men. This can't be the guy. This cannot be the Christ. This cannot be the Messiah. And ironically, he becomes the very one on whom the whole structure is built. This is how Jesus talks about himself in places like Mark chapter 12. Passages like Isaiah 53 envision exactly this. That the true light, which gives light to everyone, comes into the world. He's in the world. The world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people received him not. Rejected inside of men. Isaiah 53, starting verse 3. Speaking of the Lord Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces... Though unseemly and contemptible in the sight of man, Jesus is the one through whom God accomplishes His purposes. He is the very one through whom God saves His people. And so Peter writes, "As you come to him, you come to a living stone, chosen and precious, though rejected by men. And he says, "You are being built like living stones yourselves. You are being built into a house of the Spirit." He tells these readers that you are being built into a house." Now, last week we said that we were talking about the way that the the Word takes root in us, and Peter says the Word takes root in us, and what, what kind of blossoms out of the Word taking root in us is love. Love, especially for our brothers and sisters. Last week we said that we're given siblings that we didn't choose, but we're commanded to love. Siblings, brothers and sisters in the church. We're saved to a father, and we necessarily receive brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, as you come to Christ, you... Plural, you, y'all, are being built into a spiritual house. You are a stone that is a part of a bigger structure than just the stone. And this is something that, frankly, you can't quite overstate in, in our day and age. The church is a corporate reality. It is not isolated individuals. We are individual stones who come to him individually, yes, but we do not come to him alone. To mix metaphors a little bit, I've heard it said before that oftentimes, kind of in our day and age, we think of ourselves, those in a church, like a bag of marbles. That we're all these kind of individual units that happen to be in the same bag together. The bag this morning happens to be the sanctuary at 407 Ridgewood Drive. But a more accurate way to think about ourselves isn't a bag of marbles. It's more like a bag of grapes. Connected. Mutually interdependent. One, we receive our nourishment from the same place, and we belong together. We are a body, a house. Sticking with the analogy of the text, Christians are living stones that are built into a house. Not a physical house, of course. No more than Jesus was a physical cornerstone, right? No, Peter says, this house is a people. You are the spiritual house. Again, connected, interdependent, strengthening and supporting one another. Then this next session is like, just a, a rapid fire of old testament allusions and references verse 5 he says uh, your spiritual house you're built into a holy priesthood a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices where in the old testament do we see language this kind of language coming together of god's dwelling place his priests and his sacrifices well, it's in the temple. It's in the talk of God giving in the Old Covenant this dwelling place to the people of Israel. God instituted the temple and the priesthood, the place where he commanded them to offer sacrifices. It was a sign of God's approval and presence with his people. And Peter says that this house, this new covenant temple, isn't a building. It isn't located in a, in a, in a specific geography necessarily. It's rather a people. God's house is y'all. It's you. It's a people. The Old Testament imagery continues. Skip to verse 9. Hey, Emily, would you throw me my water? Sorry. I'm parched. Thanks. Sorry. Jonathan can edit that part out on the podcast. (laughs) Verse 9. Peter says, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These actually aren't just Old Testament allusions. This is lifted directly from Exodus chapter 19 after God saves Israel from Egypt. Look at this. This is from Exodus 19, starting verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's talking about the Exodus, when God rescued Israel out from the Egyptians. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, look at this, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Israel's called out of darkness, called from slavery in Egypt into a new kind of life. Life with God in the marvelous light of his presence and goodness. But unlike this big if in Exodus 19.5, Peter gives the church a big you are God has made you his chosen race, his new humanity, his priesthood, his holy nation. Church, we have been called out of our past sins, called out of enslavement to lusts and passions and former ways of living, and called into a new kind of life with God. Verse 10, you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. So I think the first thing we can say about the house that Jesus builds, it's built of his people. The house that Jesus builds is built of his people. I don't know if that's English, but we'll roll with it. We're God's people. We're God's house. We're God's priests. We're God's chosen race. We are God's nation. We are God's possession. And the good news for us Christian, is that this word is for us today as much as it was for the saints who received this letter you belong to God. Christian, we are God's people. Now, if there's any cynics in the room, when you hear that, I would I'd guess that there's probably two questions that come to mind for you. The first question is this. When Peter says that, isn't Peter being kind of exclusive? is that kind of a bold claim? That you, and by implication no one else are God's people? It's not a little bit exclusive. And the second maybe cynical thing you hear in response to that is, is Peter being serious? You are God's people? Of all of the people, you are God's people? First, let's kind of handle this first question. Is Peter being exclusive? So that's a mighty bold claim to say that we are the ones who belong to God. You say, what about Muslims? What about Hindus? What about any number of other people on planet earth that make that same claim to be God's people? Can you really say that you're God's people and they aren't? Isn't that a little exclusive? The short answer is yes, it is exclusive. But don't get it twisted because Peter actually tells us where this identity hinges and this Belonging to God's people hinges on exactly one thing in verse 6. What does he say? He says the scripture tells us that God has chosen his cornerstone, Jesus. And those who believe the word about him, those who receive the gospel announcement about Jesus, they're the ones who have the honor of being built into God's people. Verse 8, the irony is that the rock that's immovable and sturdy and hard and able to support a structure is the same rock over which the unbeliever stumbles. Verse 7, speaking of those stumbling over the word, I think Peter's actually speaking about the nation of Israel here. They're the ones that rejected the stone that would become the cornerstone. They didn't believe as they were de- destined to do. Destined in the sense that it was always God's purpose for the nation of Israel to reject their Messiah so that the Gentiles could be grafted in. And Peter's point here is that, listen to this, belonging hinges on believing. You receive the word of the gospel, and you are built into this house. So the house that Jesus builds is built of his people. But the second thing I think we can say here is that the house that Jesus built is built on himself. Think about it like this. God's person, with a capital P, is Jesus. And those who place their faith in Jesus are united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. They have their sins forgiven. They are given Jesus' righteousness and status and title and privileges. And that makes us God's people. What's so great, I think, about this stone language is is thinking about, what what does Peter's name mean? What what does Peter's name mean? Simon Peter. Rock. Rock. Makes you think of Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asks Peter and the disciples this. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Jesus speaking about himself. Who do do people say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall, shall not prevail against it. Peter's telling us that the profession of faith is the basis for belonging. This house is built on Christ, and it is built of those who profess Christ. So is this exclusive? Absolutely. God's people are only those who profess Christ. It is wildly exclusive. But listen to me. It is wildly exclusive. Inclusive, because the house is built from stones that have been gathered from all tribes, tongues, languages, and nations. This new nation is a people of all nations. This new race is every shade of melanin. All of those who place their faith in Christ are built into the spiritual house. Which kind of leads into the second question. Is Peter being serious? It's like Jesus, with all of the resources that you possess, this is what you choose to make your house out of. Yes. God's house is a house built of numbskulls, scallywags, ragamuffins, and ne'er do wells. I'm talking about you who are, by God's grace, stumbling upwards towards Jesus. Rich, poor, black, white, Arabic, Western, Chinese, African, former criminals, addicts, and church kids. Such were some of us, called out of who knows what, called out of who even cares, because we have been called to Jesus as his people, given a mercy we didn't earn and a status we don't deserve. We were once not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we didn't receive mercy, but now we've received mercy. The house that Jesus builds is built of his people. And the house that Jesus builds is built on himself and himself alone. The last thing is the house that Jesus builds is built to something. Let's look at 1 Peter 2, verse 5. 1 Peter 2, 9 again. <clears throat> again, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To what? To be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then look at the second half of verse 9. You're a chosen race, a royal priest, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like Israel, God has consecrated a people to himself in order to make his glory known among the nations. So there's a kind of life that corresponds or or flows out of this new identity. The calling of God's people in every place, a a do that corresponds to the R. There to be that in ancient Egypt, there to be that in Babylon, there to be that exiled in northern Turkey, there to be that in Greer, South Carolina. Peter gives them two do's, we might say. They're made into a spiritual house in order to make sacrifices to God made acceptable through Jesus Christ and to be a people for God's own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. Now this word proclaim is this one of these kind of gnarly conjugated Greek words that's used once in the New Testament and it's translated in the KJV as to show forth. Greek Old Testament uses this word all over the Psalms. It's declare, declare, declare. Here it's interpreted as proclaim. It's a kind of, it's a showing forth. It's, it's a flossing, you might say. Excellencies is a word that's used a handful of times in the New Testament. Sometimes translated as excellence, other times it's translated as virtue, as in like moral goodness or moral excellence. So what Peter's saying here is that we have been made a people for God's possession to show forth God's virtues, to show forth God's moral goodness, to proclaim. His excellencies. This idea of offering sacrifices is one that's all over the New Testament. And it's important, of course, to pay attention to the end of verse 5. It says that these these sacrifices are made acceptable by the blood of Jesus. It clues us in as to the nature of these sacrifices. These aren't rituals that we perform to shore up our salvation, to sort of make sure everything's buttoned up. they're not given to re-atone for sin. We sin Thursday, we need to crank out a few sacrifices today to make sure we cover that up. That's that's not the way Peter's thinking. No, Jesus is the once-for-all sacrifice that's given to save God's people. His work covers us, even our good works. And these sacrifices, we're told, in verse 5, are sacrifices metaphorically, kind of riffing again on the Old Testament. It's not bulls and goats. That old system is obsolete now. This is a sacrifice of our lives. It's like Romans chapter 12. This is how Paul says it. I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I shared this story several months ago. I have to share it again because it's just the cutest um, is anybody familiar with the hit 90s Christian song from Stephen Curtis Chapman, The Great Adventure? Settle up your horses, we got a trail. Nice. <laughs> I love it. It's great. 90s music, man. <clears throat> In my house, we love all things 90s. And we're just like, listen to 90s music, listen to 90s Stephen Curtis Chapman. There's just one evening, we're listening to that song after cleaning up after dinner, It's time to settle things down. So we turn down the music. We start to try and slow down so everybody can get ready for bed. And Ruthie, our little girl, my four-year-old daughter at that time, she's still amped up. She's bouncing around singing. But instead of singing, saddle up your horses, she's singing, saddle up your whole selves. Saddle up your whole selves. Right? As I'm listening to that, I'm like, actually, yes. That's it saddle up your whole selves. Prepare to completely and exhaustively and comprehensively follow Jesus. Saddle up every bit of yourself and ride after Christ. We offer ourselves as a sacrifice, Romans chapter 12. Or earlier in Romans, the idea of presenting ourselves for service, Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, do not present your members, literally your appendages. Do not present your members To sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members, your limbs, your arms, your hands, your legs, to God as instruments for righteousness. Christian, you have been baptized into Christ, which means every part of you that got wet belongs to Jesus. Now go serve him with all of that. With your arms and your legs and your eyes and your your pancreas and everything else, your whole body, you are to present to the Lord Jesus as instruments for righteousness. Again, 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says it like this. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He's saying literally, honor God with your body. Saddle up your whole selves. And the goodness, this comes from Hebrews 13. This is so good. If I were to ask you, like, what are the most private, personal spaces, the things that you kind of reserve the right to keep most to yourself, if we were to make a list of those things, I would imagine that at the top of that list, somewhere would be your house, your bed, and your wallet. Watch this. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality for strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Your home and your bed and your wallet, guess what? The author of Hebrews goes for the jugular, the most personal, and he says, go serve the Lord with those. Same chapter, verse 15, he says this. Through him, then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. See what he's saying? We are a spiritual house, a priesthood offering the sacrifices of our homes, beds, wallets, lips, lives, and limbs. Our very selves are surrendered to Jesus. And you ask, how on earth could I do such a thing? I mean that seems so onerous or taxing. My whole life given to Jesus, really? What could possibly motivate motivate us to do such a thing? And I think Peter would tell us it's this. Because he's just so doggone excellent. Verse 9, this is the one who took you out of darkness and brought you into marvelous light. How else could we respond to him than to surrender our lives in service to him? He's called us out of darkness, out of the dank, wet, nasty cave of sin, death, regret, and despair. Out of slavery to my sin. I was feasting on mud pies. I was, it was a banquet in the grave. I was fast bound in nature's light. I was dead, dead. In my trespasses and sin, but God, being rich in mercy, has called me into his marvelous light, a life of joy and freedom and holiness. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And it's like this God, ah, he gets all of me, and I surrender myself completely and utterly to him. What I think Peter is saying is that by choosing to offer our lips, lives, and limbs, we are showing the surpassing worth of the God of the gospel. This God is just so good, I have to consecrate myself to him. The house that Jesus builds, he has built to proclaim his excellencies. And we show the world how excellent he is when we offer ourselves exhaustively and completely to him. This is the house that Jesus builds. He is a carpenter, after all. I think there's so much that could be said at this point, but I want to speak to three different kinds of people I think might be hearing this this morning. The first is this. You're here this morning, and you would not consider yourself a Christian. I'm going to go out on a limb and think that everything that I just said sounds crazy to you when you hear that our lives are not our own, that we've been bought with a price, that we're God's people, all you can think is, that is a threat to my autonomy. It freaks you out. You say, is that, is that a threat to living the life, you know, my life the way that I would want to live it? Is this a threat to my autonomy? And I'd say, yes. That's the point. But I can, can I tell you just personally, I've been walking with the Lord for about 20 years at this point. I have never been more relieved, never been gladder to not belong to me. His ways are truly, truly life. And when you see the God who commands this kind of whole life sacrifice of us, when we see who he is revealed to be in Christ and his word, it's like this is a God that we can trust. I have neither the authority nor the expertise nor the skill to own me. And God has shown us in the person and work of Jesus that he is good, strong, and kind. And this is one that we can give our lives to in full confidence. He will do right by us. And I think this is actually better than the alternative. The alternative is you're on the hook for figuring out what your life is supposed to look like. You are on the hook for finding out what's ultimate. You are on the hook for finding what gives you meaning. And that to me is a really hefty burden to bear. And so what I'd say is, hang around us for a season. Hang around the people of Ridgewood. See if our lives are different. See if there's anything compelling about what we do with our lips, lives, limbs, homes, beds, and wallets. And see if that has something to say about the goodness of the God that saved us. Maybe here this morning and you're in the second category of person. I'd call you something like a Christian at large. You're disaffected with church. You're frustrated by church. You had some kind of experience in church a while ago, and as a result, you've kind of kept church at arm's length. You'd say, I'm a Christian. I love the Lord Jesus, but church, not super crazy about it. I'd point you to this passage and say, what is Peter's vision? What what is the Lord Jesus' vision for Christians? It is to build them into a spiritual house. I would just simply ask you, why not belong to a church? I don't mean attend, I mean belong. Why not take seriously this passage and become a member and see yourself as a stone that is being built into other stones? Maybe you've been hanging around Ridgewood for a bit and one thing I'd press you to consider is to join a church. Maybe this one, maybe some other church. You're a grape, after all, not a marble. You're a living stone and the house needs you, friend. Churchless Christians are like vineless grapes. You're on your way to becoming a raisin. I don't know what that means, but it sounded good. (laughs) And then finally, I would speak to Ridgewood members. This is why we do the things that we do as a church. Have you ever had the experience of meeting someone's parents, and then all of a sudden that person made complete sense to you? What we hope is that you have that sensation when you read this passage about our church. When you read 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, you say, okay, now I get Ridgewood. Now I get the things that they say they're about. Now I get the things that they are running after. We hope that you see us taking seriously our identity as God's people. We belong to God and we belong to one another. We are a house built on Christ. That's not to say we are the house built on Christ. There's gazillions of churches all over the world that are houses that are built on Jesus, that are all a part of the one big, larger house. But we want to be a church built on Jesus, a people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. We're from Columbia. We're from Greer. We're from the other Columbia, The Southern Columbia. We're from Simpsonville. We're from Idaho. We're from Washington. We're from Russia. And we are committed to being a spiritual house together. We're committed to acquainting ourselves with His excellencies more and more and more so we can go about proclaiming them with our lives and our faithfulness to Jesus. We want to be generous with our homes and wallets, but stingy with our beds. We want to be committed to missions and planting and revitalization. And we want to offer ourselves. As living sacrifices for Jesus' glory. And we hope that you see us living out this text. By God's grace, this is who we want to be when we grow up. Now, each week, we pause to take the Lord's Supper. And the reason we do this is several reasons we do this. But one that I want to draw our attention to this morning is the Lord's Supper is given to strengthen God's people in this task. To, To reaffirm, to remind us, yeah, this is the spiritual house that I belong to. The same blood, the same body, the same baptism, the same Lord, the same faith unites us. But it also gives us strength to continue pressing forward and offering our lives as living stones and living sacrifices to Jesus. The next few moments I'm going to pray. After I pray, I'm going to read a liturgy. Uh, And then there's going to come a point where I'm going to invite everyone forward. The way that this works is we always ask the folks who come and take to go uh, make their way to, to these walls, to come forward, grab the elements, and then return back to their seats, and just hang on to those elements as you stand, and we'll take all at once. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we pray that you would build us into a spiritual house, that you would make us into your priests, a kingdom of priests, a, a royal nation, your people. We pray that you would knit us together, that you'd create in us deep love and commitment to one another. And Lord Jesus, would you never let us grow cold to the reality that you have called us out of darkness into light, called us from judgment and death into holiness and hope in you pray this morning for the folks who are here who are not yet Christians. We pray that the Spirit would work in them and that they would see, by your Spirit, they would see the glory of Jesus, the glory of the gospel, has work for us. I pray for friends who are here this morning who are Christians at large and who have not yet plugged in somewhere. We pray that you would help them to see that they, uh, that the calling is for them to be a part of a body. And I pray for Ridgewood. I, I do pray, Lord Jesus, that these things would be true of us and that you would allow us the opportunity. To make Christ known here in Greer and to the ends of the earth through planting, missions, revitalization, you know, whatever form that might take. We, we pray that you would work in us, make these things true of us.